Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Scott Mingus and Eric Wittenberg, authors of If We Are Striking for Pennsylvania. Scott Mingus and Eric Wittenberg are the authors of If We Are Striking for Pennsylvania, The Army of Northern Virginia and the Army of the Potomac, March to Gettysburg, Volume 1, June 3 to June 21st, 1863. Now, the narrative of your book begins with the Union and Confederate armies facing off against each other along the Rappahannock River. Uh, Eric, how long had they been in that position? So they had basically occupied that position since the end of the Battle of Chancellorsville. Uh, the Army of the Potomac retreated from Chancellorsville on the 6th of May, and they fell back to those positions about that time. So they'd been there for nearly a month, and even before Chancellorsville, they'd been there since the end of the Battle of Fredericksburg. So they, the winter encampment of both armies was in and around Fredericksburg. It was interrupted by the Chancellorsville campaign, and then the, the two armies returned to the same positions they'd held before Chancellorsville. Scott, were, uh, were, was the Union Army at this point planning its next step, or were they just kind of in a wait-and-see mode? I think a lot of it was a, more of a wait-and-see mode. They just, as Eric mentioned, just fought the Battle of Chancellorsville. They'd suffered some rather staggering losses. In fact, both armies had, and they were trying to regroup. The army that was changing the most, though, was the Army of Northern Virginia, because uh, following Chancellorsville, of course, they had to make the decision on what to do with Stonewall Jackson's replacement. And Robert E. Lee, at that point, had made a decision he'd been contemplating for some time, and that was to reduce the complexity of his army by um, replacing Stonewall Jackson's large corps with two smaller corps under two new lieutenant generals that he thought would be more maneuverable in battle and would give them a better chance for moving smaller bodies of troops. So uh, the Union Army is rather dormant at that stage. Uh, Joseph Hooker's not doing a lot, uh, just kind of sitting around waiting to see what's happening. But the Confederate Army's reorganizing and starting to plan what their next step is. How did the defeat at Chancellorsville affect the morale of the, of the Army of the Potomac? It really didn't. The men really didn't mm -hmm. think they'd been beaten. They, they thought Joe Hooker had been beaten, right. but they didn't think the Army had been beaten. So morale was, was really quite high. They were ready to go, whatever they were, their next assignment was going to be. It's not like, <clears throat> excuse me, after the Battle of Fredericksburg, when they had to completely restore the Army's morale and pretty much start from scratch. Was Lincoln committed to Hooker at this point? I think Lincoln was certainly had doubts about Hooker uh, at that point. I mean, certainly he was still behind him as the commanding general, uh, but there were certainly doubts within the War Department and within the cabinet as to Hooker's long-term efficiency. Uh, Lincoln was somewhat on the fence, but he was certainly prodding Hooker as the campaign begins to, um, shall we say, be a little more uncharacteristically aggressive. More importantly, the arm, Hooker had lost the army. That's the important point. Yeah, the, his generals wanted him to go. They didn't think he was capable. They thought he had completely mangled what could have been a very successful campaign, and they had no confidence in him. In fact, one of the key officers that was not happy with Hooker was a guy who was going to play a key role 
in Pennsylvania and eventually leading the defense of Pennsylvania, and that was Major General uh, Darius Couch. Uh, Couch had commanded the Second Corps of uh, Hooker's army and totally lost confidence in Hooker, uh, was one of the several generals that had expressed his doubts about it. And Couch, in fact, resigned from the Army of Northern or Army of Potomac, and was awaiting assignment. And will eventually, as we as we'll see as the campaign unfold, be transferred here to the Harrisburg area, and will take command of Pennsylvania's defenses. Yeah, he refused to serve under under Hooker's command any further. Correct. Did he or any of these other officers directly communicate to Lincoln or Secretary of War Stanton about their concerns? Go ahead. Uh, the answer is yes. Yeah. Yeah. There were. There, there were uh, many officers of senior rank who, who made their unhappiness known. And as early as June 2nd, mm -hmm. uh, Lincoln reportedly and reputedly offered command of the Army to John Fulton Reynolds. Uh, there's no official record of this anywhere. It was apparently verbal. And Reynolds said he would only take the command if he was given unfettered uh, discretion to command the Army without interference from Washington. And the Lincoln administration wasn't about to agree right. to that, so uh, Reynolds declined and recommended George Gordon meet, and he wasn't the only one to do so. Mm -hmm. There were several other corps commanders who did the same thing, including Couch. Yep. Now, you mentioned the Battle of Fredericksburg, and then there was also the Battle of Chancellorsville. Did Lee conclude that this gave him an opportunity to take more aggressive action? Oh, absolutely. I mean, keep in mind, Lee had a number of concerns. I mean, first of all, they've been fighting in Virginia for almost 18 months. So the food supplies in Virginia were starting to run low. He had the concern about what was going on in Vicksburg with U.S. Grant uh, investing that uh, key garrison that would, uh, would uh, deny the Confederates further use of the Mississippi River. Uh, he was certainly concerned about, uh, you know, the ongoing supply situation uh, coming from the north was just constantly sending more and more supplies, many of which were out you know, coming from Pennsylvania. So Lee had... Uh, in conjunction with the War Department, also realized that just winning battles in Virginia wasn't enough. They'd won several battles. I mean, Lee was, depending how you want to view the Battle of Sharpsburg, was undefeated or with one tie at this stage of his career in command of the Army of Northern Virginia. So he and the War Department certainly had a concern that they needed to win a victory, uh, perhaps in northern soil, preferably on northern soil. So the plans to come to Pennsylvania were not new. It was something they obviously wanted to do back in the fall of 1862 that culminated in the Battle of Sharpsburg. Did uh, Lee make that decision on his own, or was he having discussions with Jefferson Davis and other Confederate leaders about the next step and moving into Pennsylvania? There was an extensive uh, meeting mm -hmm. in Richmond among the Confederate high command and Lee where Lee basically pitched the idea of invading the North and had to sell it to the Confederate cabinet, which ultimately approved. But one of the concerns even then, Eric, of course, is that the Confederate cabinet did not 100% buy into the plan to the point of giving Lee unfettered command. So also they true. actually pulled troops back from Lee's army to protect Richmond, just in the case that the Yankees would do something untoward uh, and move towards the... Uh, the city, so Lee did not get his full troops. They, they moved some other troops in from perhaps less experienced troops, uh, men that weren't necessarily obvious with the Army of Northern Virginia to try to replace the manpower, but in some cases those were uh, troops with less experience. And, and those concerns were well taken because as you will see developing over the course of both volumes of this study, 
there was a union campaign. It was ultimately aborted and not successful, but to move on Richmond mm -hmm. once the Confederates had begun their invasion of the North. Absolutely. So the, the concern was well-founded. So as, as the events that, that you cover in your book take place, uh, the Vicksburg campaign uh, the siege there is going on. So was there concern among both the Confederate and Union leaders? Were they trying to figure out ways to balance forces, balance resources mm -hmm. between the two theaters? Yeah, in fact, one of the things that Lee had hoped uh, in the War Department, James Sedden in particular, Secretary of War, I thought was a movement towards Pennsylvania or towards uh, Western Maryland would potentially uh, cause the Union to move troops out of the Mississippi theater, in fact, or stop reinforcements. And in fact, what happened was um, Union Major General Ambrose Burnside's Ninth Corps was on its way towards reinforcing um, Grant's army at Vicksburg. They're gonna make it as far as Tennessee, I believe, and they're gonna turn around and head back to Cincinnati uh, via rail, and they're gonna be on their way towards Pennsylvania as the campaign unfolds. So. They were partially successful in uh, diverting troops away from Mississippi, but in the long run, uh, really didn't make that much difference. It's also important to note, and this doesn't happen in volume one because of timing, it happens in volume two, but uh, you also have on June 26th, the commencement of what we today call the Tullahoma campaign, mm -hmm. which is the movement of the Army of the Cumberland from the Nashville area, uh, drove the Confederates out of, Middle Tennessee all the way back to Chattanooga. So you have taking place at exactly the same time, Vicksburg, Gettysburg, and the, the Tullahoma campaign. And it proved to be more than the Confederates could handle because it's pressure on all fronts at all, all, all at the same time. Now, once Lee and the Confederates decided that they were going to strike for Pennsylvania, as your title says, mm -hmm. uh, how, did they, how did Lee plan to disengage his troops from the Rappahannock area without gaining too much Union notice. Yeah, it's kind of an interesting story because on June 3rd and June 4th, the Army of Northern Virginia lead elements start leaving. Um, and one of the things is, is, I like human interest stories, and one of the things I've always enjoyed is the uh, story of John Gordon's Georgia Brigade. Uh, they're lighting massive bonfires and campfires throughout the night uh, to entice the Yankees into thinking they're still there. Uh, and then in reality, they're slipping away in the cover of darkness. Uh, the Union had observation balloons on the other side of the Rappahannock River, but at night, of course, they're relatively useless. But during the daytime, um, you know, they were under observation for several miles from these balloonists. So they made their movement initially at night uh, by the cover of darkness and started slipping away. But over the period of the next uh, two weeks, uh, the troops would actually be leaving in waves. Uh, not until mid-June uh, do the final troops begin to leave from the Confederate line from Hamilton's Crossing up to Fredericksburg, Virginia. Now you mentioned the balloonists, which I thought was really fascinating, and, and you, you talk about them a little bit in, in the book. Uh, how extensive was their use? Did they have one balloon? Did they have many balloons? And, and who was in the balloons? Uh, the balloon, yeah, they actually had one balloon most of the campaign. The, the Union Army had a balloon corps, but they lost some confidence in the balloon corps over time. And by the time of this, uh, I believe it was only the Intrepid, Eric, was That's the right. only one that was still in the air yep. at this point in time. What was in there were staff officers. In fact, at one point, George Armstrong Custer, who's a staff officer, is up there with a field glass. Uh, and again, their job is to watch the roads to look for any signs of Confederate movements. Uh, this will actually be the last major use of balloons in the Eastern Theater, uh, will be as this campaign begins. 
Can you just briefly describe kind of the route that Lee's forces would take up into Pennsylvania? Sure, they end up going from Fredericksburg to Culpeper, and then from Culpeper, they advance up the Shenandoah Valley uh, via the, the, the gaps in, in the Blue Ridge mm -hmm. through Winchester. Once they capture Winchester, they then advance down, down the valley, cross the Potomac River around Williamsport, and then advance up the Cumberland Valley into Pennsylvania via Carlisle, then to Chambersburg. And it's probably or Chambersburg, then Carlisle. Yep. And it's probably interesting to the people watching here in Pennsylvania, for example, is that the Cumberland Valley slash Shenandoah Valley has been called the Avenue of Invasion uh, because uh, people may not be aware, this was not the Confederates' first incursion into Pennsylvania. Jeb Stewart had uh, come into Pennsylvania in October of 1862 and raided Chambersburg and burned the railroad facilities in that town. So Pennsylvanians were already on edge uh, as the Confederates start marching uh, with the route that Eric has described, uh, thinking about you know what, what's going to happen again, or are they going to be coming back? So I want to talk a little bit about the cavalry that that these two armies were using. Uh, Eric, can you kind of explain what the role of the cavalry was? Sure. The, at this stage of the war, the traditional role of cavalry was scouting, screening, and reconnaissance. Scouting, looking for routes for the army to take screening, present, preventing the enemy from finding the main body, and reconnaissance, it's what it sounds like, searching for the enemy. So those are the primary roles of cavalry, and uh, the Union Army in particular had come a long way just mm -hmm. even since February of 63, when uh, Hooker gave an order massing all the cavalry of the Army of the Potomac finally into a single corps with unitary leadership. And since that time, uh, the Union cavalry had advanced leaps and bounds, so much so that the Confederates were, were hadn't quite figured it out yet, and were still trying to play catch up with it. And they're they're going to find out over the course of this campaign just how far the Union cavalry had come. Sure. Well, well, let's talk about the the commanders of the different cavalry units here. So Alfred Pleasanton was the Brigadier General uh, in charge of the Union cavalry. Who was he, and, and what kind of a commander was he? So Alfred Pleasanton was a native of Washington, D.C. His father had uh, gained the thanks of Congress for saving uh, the founding documents, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, uh, from being captured and burned by the British during the War of 1812. So as a consequence of that, Stephen Pleasanton was his name. Uh, Congress voted that any children of Stephen Pleasanton could be educated at the government's expense. Well, in those days, what that meant was you went to Annapolis or you went to West Point. And both of his sons were graduates of the West Point Military Academy. His son Augustus ended up in command of the militia forces in Philadelphia mm -hmm. during the, the, the invasion of Pennsylvania. Alfred, in turn, had spent his whole career uh, in the mounted service of the uh, United States Army. He was a member of the 2nd Dragoons, which at the outbreak of the war, they reorganized the cavalry, and the 2nd Dragoons became the 2nd U.S. Cavalry. And um, he had been the senior division commander of the Army of the Potomac's Cavalry Corps when it was formed. And when its original commander, George Stoneman, took medical leave after the Chancellorsville campaign, uh, Pleasanton ended up in command of the Corps what was originally meant to be temporarily, and then in August of 63, after the Gettysburg campaign was over, it was made permanent. Pleasanton was a guy who was a voracious self-promoter. <laughs> he was a guy who was not known to be very good at telling the truth. 
He was a lead from the rear sort of a guy who was very politically astute, but the one thing he had going for him was he had an eye for talent. Mm -hmm. And he identified some aggressive young officers and arranged for them to be advanced um, rather quickly and over and to the disgust of many much more experienced men who felt like uh, their turn to get promoted had been uh, usurped by these young officers who will end up playing a role in the campaign, one of whom Scott's already mentioned, George Custer. On the Confederate side was Jeb Stewart. Correct. What, was, what kind of a commander was he? So the best way I can describe Stewart to you is, is that in the years before the war, when he was a, an officer in the 1st United States Cavalry, one of his commanding officers there was Major John Sedgwick, who of course goes on to be a corps commander in the Army of the Potomac. And Sedgwick said of Jeb Stewart that he was the, the finest cavalryman ever fold on the North American continent. So that sums it up pretty well. Mm -hmm. Stewart had no peer when it came to the traditional roles of cavalry, scouting, screening, reconnaissance. Nobody did it better. Nobody's ever done it better. Right. Now, one of the key early engagements of this campaign was at Brandy Station and right. a cavalry battle. What happened? So, at the Battle of Brandy Station, which was fought on June 9th, uh, outside of Culpeper, you have a 14-hour slugging match between the Union and Confederate cavalry. There were 3,000 Union infantry there, some of whom were engaged, about half of them were engaged. Um, but it's, it's a, an epic engagement that ultimately ended up delaying the Confederate advance by a single day. But it's, uh, it's got all of the romance you would imagine of mounted combat with mounted car ch charges and counter charges and saber duels and hand-to-hand -hand combat. And uh, one of the officers who ended up being wounded for the Confederates in hand-to-hand -hand combat was Robert E. Lee's son, Rooney Lee. So it's, uh, it struck home a little bit for the general who watched the, the battle raging from not far away, and at one point he and Richard Ewell had to seek shelter because uh, some Union cavalry were coming right at them. Now, the Union troopers didn't know they were there. I'm sure they would have made a beeline for them, <laughs> but it caused Lee and Ewell to scramble. So you say that no longer could Stewart's troopers claim undisputed superiority over their Yankee counterparts. So was this one of those first engagements where maybe the Confederates started to realize what you were talking about earlier, that, that the Union was getting us out together on cavalry? Some of that had already begun. We, we saw mm -hmm. some of that at the Battle of Kelly's Ford mm -hmm. on March 17, 1863, when Union cavalry uh, was very aggressive in, in uh, making an attempt to push their way through to Culpeper. Uh, so that began there, and then you have the Stoneman Raid during the Chancellorsville campaign, but Brandy Station was really sort of the coming out party. Scott, uh, throughout the book, you guys write about newspaper reports and how sure. they're covering these campaigns. Sure. So at what point do northern newspapers start to realize that there's something going on here? Well, I think a lot of it, everybody's kind of knows that there's something afoot because the Confederates shouldn't be in, in Culpeper. Uh, that they have, have been in and around Fredericksburg for such a long time that Culpeper's out of the way. So the newspapers are starting to suspect there's something wrong. Where the newspaper coverage really starts getting worried is when the Confederates march into the Shenandoah Valley and fight the Battle of Winchester. Uh, after that, the newspapers, particularly here in south-central Pennsylvania, start 
almost hitting the panic button, some of them at least do. Uh, so what are we going to do? What's happening? Here they come again. Where's the Union Army? Uh, how are we going to defend ourselves? And at the same token, the governor of Pennsylvania, Andrew Greg Curtin, is receiving pressure not only from his constituents, but certainly as well from Washington uh, to find out, you know, are they coming to Pennsylvania? What's going to happen here? Uh, and as you read the newspaper coverage, it's, it's quite interesting because some newspapers are almost nonchalant that, okay, they're not coming to Pennsylvania. It's kind of a useless, in fact, uh, in York, where I live, uh, one of the newspapers calls it a useless scare among railroad men that, you know, okay, the railroad guys are all concerned about their supplies, their trains, but they're really not coming to Pennsylvania because the only troops that have ever come to Pennsylvania at that point were, was a mere cavalry raid by Jeb Stewart, and he turned around and left. Not the whole Army of Northern Virginia. Yeah, nobody was, nobody was, was thought that was happening. So were there newspaper correspondents with Union troops sure, during this was. period? Mm -hmm. yep. Absolutely. Yeah, they were embedded, uh, to use a modern term, embedded with the Army. Um, Hooker liked publicity, so there were certainly always a number of newspaper correspondents in and around, uh, at, this, at this stage in the book, Volume 1. Uh, these reporters uh, have regular access to the commanding general. Uh, they have almost, to use the word Eric used earlier, almost unfettered access uh, to what's going on in high command. Now later, General Meade's going to start cracking down on some of that access. Uh, but in the volume one, while Hooker's still in command of the Army, uh, the reporters are sending back quite a lot of messages about what's happening. So as uh, Lee's troops are moving out from the Rappahannock River area and over into the Shenandoah Valley, are people in Pennsylvania starting to become concerned? Not initially, but over time, they, they certainly do. It's once Winchester falls right. is when the panic starts. Correct. Well, let's talk about Winchester. Uh, Major General Robert Milroy was the Union commander there. Who was he? So Milroy was uh, known as the Gray Eagle because mm -hmm. he had this massive shock of wild gray hair. He was a... Uh, from Indiana, he was a graduate of Norwich University and not a West Pointer, and he made no bones about the fact that he hated West Pointers. He didn't think West Pointers should be in charge. Uh, he was a guy who was known to be mercurial. He um, really almost had a breakdown at the climax of the Second Battle of Bull Run in August of 1862, uh, standing on a rock screaming at his troops. and. Um, He's a bit of a wild guy, and he was also a very hardcore abolitionist and a hardcore guy whose belief was if you supported the Confederates, you were traitors. Mm -hmm. So consequently, when he was sent with a division of about 8,000 men to occupy Winchester during the winter of 1862-1863, he ruled the town with an iron fist, and if he thought you were the least bit disloyal, they threw you out of your house, and they they marched you out beyond the lines and said, go away, you're not allowed back in. Okay. And it was, he was hated in Winchester. Uh, there were this group of women who are, we, we today call them the devil diarists, who really tracked and documented uh, Milroy's reign of terror in Winchester very accurately. and. Uh, when, when Milroy was forced to abandon the town because of the Confederate invasion, uh, he was mockingly uh, sent away, and, and the people of Winchester were, were just thrilled to have the friendly Confederate faces back in charge of the town, and Milroy gone because his, his rule of the town had been that harsh and that, that hateful. 
Yeah, one of the problems Milroy has is he's outnumbered almost three to one. Uh, he has one division of the Union Eighth Corps, where he's being attacked by an entire Confederate Corps under Lieutenant General Richard Yule. Now, for those who might be interested in the Pennsylvania aspect of the Battle of Winchester, there were two infantry regiments from Pennsylvania, the 67th Pennsylvania, which was from the west central part of the state largely, although it was recruited in numerous areas, then the 87th Pennsylvania, which was recruited specifically in York and Adams County, mostly in York County, as well as the 12th and 13th Pennsylvania Cavalry Regiments, which had troops from Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, et cetera, and again, places throughout the state. So there was a fairly strong Pennsylvania contingent uh, to Milroy's troops. The problem Milroy had is not only is he outnumbered, is most of his troops had never fired a shot in anger. Uh, he did have some regiments, 5th Maryland, for example, that had fought at the Battle of Antietam, but many of his troops, including the Pennsylvania troops, have been largely bridge guards for the railroads, uh, trying to protect them throughout much of the early part of the war. So as the Confederates are arriving in the Winchester region, uh, they don't really realize who they're facing early on, but certainly the inexperience of not only uh, Milroy's subordinate commanders, but certainly the, the troops themselves and their field officers are going to play a large role at Winchester. Not to mention the fact the town itself can't be defended. Correct. And Milroy was ordered to evacuate his troops and said, nah, I've got these great defenses I've dug here. Yeah. We can hold the place. And he... he explicitly disobeyed a direct order to Correct. evacuate the town. From the President of the United States. Yeah. So one of those defensive positions was called Fort Milroy. Did he name that after himself? Of course. <laughs> of course. Yeah, sad thing for him is Fort Milroy was originally called Fort Jackson. Uh, it was built by Stonewall Jackson's troops in 1862 during the Valley Campaign and was strengthened thereafter. Uh, the forts that Milroy saw were lying on in Winchester on the wrong side of town. Uh, most of them are on the north or northwest side of town. They're designed to protect Winchester from an invasion coming from the north from uh, Union troops, and they're not <laughs> intended to protect Winchester from the south from that uh, Confederate troops coming up from Front Royal and places like that. So the Confederates would take Winchester. Uh, there would be two battles there, the initial battle for the town, and then Milroy would try to escape. But what happened? Yeah, he tried to finally got around to obeying the order way too late, of course. Uh, after two days of fighting, he slipped out at 2 o'clock in the morning on June 15th and tried to reach the Charlestown Road, which was his only available realistic route of survival because Martinsburg had already fallen on Route 11, Valley Turnpike, to part of Yule's Corps. So he's trying to get to the Charlestown Road. The Confederates beat him to it uh, with their own night march uh, in one of the worst disasters for the Union Army uh, during the war. More than half of Milroy's men, more than 4,000 of his 8,000 soldiers, wound up being taken prisoner. Now, that's the highest percentage of Union troops lost in a major battle till Corregidor in World War II. So this is a flaming fiasco. And in fact, at one point, Milroy and his staff right off the battlefield, ostensibly to find a way out for everyone else, but they leave their troops kind of on their own. Uh, and for the Pennsylvanians involved, uh, the 67th Pennsylvania surrenders in mass. Uh, more than 70% of their men will be captured. Uh, when they just throw down their weapons and surrender. Uh, nearly half of the 87th Pennsylvania from York and, uh, York and Gettysburg also will surrender. Um, many of the cavalrymen will make their way out, as well as the surviving infantrymen, but this is a flaming disaster. And, and many of those survivors who, who didn't get captured 
end up marching all the way from Winchester to a bloody run, which today is known as the town of Everett. Mm -hmm. So that's that's a pretty good hoof. Oh, yeah. And 50 of those those survivors in the 87, they actually come back to Gettysburg and York and will go on to Wrightsville uh, and will take part in the defense of the world's longest covered bridge, which will come up in volume two. Now, many of these troops that you mentioned who managed to get away, you would met, you would refer to them throughout the story here because they keep appearing in different they places. To, it looks like they're scattered groups of people slowly working their way north, including Milroy himself. Yeah, Milroy actually will take a train uh, back to Baltimore, and he will talk to uh, his commander, uh, Major General Robert Shank, uh, like me, a graduate of Miami of Ohio. Uh, Shank will basically tell him, you're under arrest, uh, and you've lost your division. Well, Milroy decides I'm not under arrest. He actually will then come to Pennsylvania. He'll come here to the Harrisburg area and he'll try to meet with Governor Andrew Curtin, again trying to plead his cause. Uh, Milroy will end up losing his command, uh, will spend much of the rest of 1863 and early 1864 pleading with his old friend the President, trying to get in the War Department, trying to get some sort of command back. His men will, will be scattered among largely among the Sixth Corps and some other Union uh, troops, so his division will never be reconstituted. And Milroy will end up finally getting a job in Tennessee, uh, commanding bridge guards, uh, if nothing else, and will end up fighting uh, a couple small battles against Nathan Bedford Forrest out west. But his career is pretty much wrecked at Winchester. And there's this great story about how after the war, he came to Winchester to campaign for Ulysses S. Grant. You want to talk about tone deaf. Um, he, he basically got booed off the stage and out of town and couldn't understand why. Yeah. Yeah, you, you, one of the quotes you have in the book is from Henry Halleck, and uh, I guess as Milroy is working his way up possibly towards Harper's Ferry, uh, Halleck says, do not give Milroy any command at Harper's Ferry. We have had enough of that sort of military genius. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That, that's a classic, yeah, that's an absolute classic. Uh, so well, as, the, the irony, let me finish with one thing, because there are still letters and diary entries that exist from soldiers, particularly in Pennsylvania, from the 87th, 67th, for example, that talk about the fact that what happened at Winchester was not a defeat, that three days they delayed the Confederate Army actually saved Harrisburg. In fact, uh, Sergeant John Griffiths from the 87th Pennsylvania from York, Northern York County uh, writes an eloquent letter back home uh, and then years later supports that as well, talking about the fact that Harrisburg would have fallen had it not been for the Sterling defense Milroy led at Winchester. So you can just see that, you know, his men ended up liking the guy even despite the debacle. Well, let's talk about some of the things that were going on in Pennsylvania uh, while this campaign was unfolding. Uh, one was that they created the Department of the Monongahela. Uh, what, what was the purpose of that? Sure. Go ahead, Eric. So the idea was to form these separate commands to ensure the defenses of specific areas. So the Department of Monongahela, based in Pittsburgh, was to defend the western part of the state. The <coughs> Excuse me. That's right, we can edit that. Yeah, I apologize. Out. That's okay, if you want to start over, that's fine. Um, the whole idea between, behind forming these different departments was to ensure that the different regions of Pennsylvania were adequately defended. So the Department of the Monongahela, which was based in Pittsburgh, was designed to defend the western part of the state. The Department of the Susquehanna, which was based here in Harrisburg, obviously was to defend the eastern part of the state. And there's also a department based in, the, in eastern Pennsylvania that was intended to defend Philadelphia and the coal regions north of Philadelphia. 
Some believed that that was actually Robert E. Lee's final objective was the coal fields uh, in northeastern Pennsylvania that so by, by destroying those coal fields, it would deprive the Union of its industrial might. Uh, there was really a lot of uncertainty about exactly what Lee's intentions were. Uh, so there's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of calling out local militia troops. There's a lot of concern for what's going to happen to civilians, all of these things. And because there's no playbook for any of this stuff, they're having to make it up as they go. And because they're having to make it up as they go, it's, uh, it's not a pretty process. Mm -hmm. One of the issues is right after the Battle of Winchester, the president and the War Department request 100,000 troops uh, to defend wherever Lee may be going. Now, they need the Army of uh, the Potomac to remain somewhat in the ability to defend Baltimore and Washington. So it's really going to be up to the governors. They want 25,000 troops from Pennsylvania, 20, or 25,000 troops from Ohio, 25,000 from the soon-to-be state of West Virginia, and 50,000 from here in Pennsylvania. Well, they're only going to get 7,000 in Pennsylvania because folks are tired of the war effort. They're already been in the Army. They don't really believe the Confederates are coming. There's somewhat of a chicken little type effect still going on in parts of Pennsylvania, denial that the rebels will ever really come, where Ohio and West Virginia do fulfill their 25,000 apiece. It leaves Pennsylvania horribly short on troops. And the governor, in fact, Governor Curtin's going to have to rely on uh, Joel Parker, the governor of New Jersey, and Seymour, the governor of New York, to, who happen to be Democrats, and he's a Republican, uh, but he has to rely on them to send troops here to Harrisburg to help defend the Commonwealth. Now, earlier, you mentioned Darius Couch, and he would become the commander of the Department of the Susquehanna. So what, what measures did he start to take when he uh, was put in the command? Couch does a number of things. First of all, he starts laying out plans for a defense. Uh, somewhat controversially, he will eventually decide that he's going to sacrifice south, five counties in South Central Pennsylvania if he has to and just slow the Confederates down. Uh, he knows he cannot, with his inexperienced militia, win a pitch battle in South Central Pennsylvania. So he's going to establish defensive points, you know, hold Chambersburg if he can, uh, hold Gettysburg, he sends one regiment of state militia there, sends some New York troops uh, in response to Confederate cavalry incursions uh, to Chambersburg, sends another regiment of Pennsylvania militia to York uh, and Wrightsville area to defend those crossings. But he really boils down to he wants to defend the river crossings uh, because Harrisburg happens to be on the east shore. Uh, and if he can defend the west shore, uh, and at that time, the Civil War, there are only two bridges, uh, or two at Harrisburg and one more bridge down at Wrightsville uh, and a couple bridges north of Harrisburg. But to really defend the river, all you have to do is hold or defend or destroy the bridge at Wrightsville and then defend the two bridges here at Harrisburg. So that's his strategy. You deploy the state militia, delay the Confederates as long as he can, hoping to buy time for Hooker's Army of the Potomac to hot rush it, if you will, force march its way into Pennsylvania if needed. Now, it's important to note, too, that these troops were not terribly useful. Correct. Um, after the Battle of Gettysburg, when some of these troops are sent to help pursue Lee's army, uh, Baldy Smith, who was the field commander of the, the defenses of, of the Department of Susquehanna, in a dispatch to Washington, 
described his troops as being worthless. That's his word, not mine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and in fact, here's a Confederate analogy that, again, we'll pick up in volume two, but when the Confederates actually arrive in South Central Pennsylvania, uh, they were gonna dispatch one division, 6,600 men under Major General Jubal Early East from Gettysburg to secure that bridge at Wrightsville uh, through York. He will decide, and he quotes, that the Pennsylvania State Militia is so utterly inefficient that he decides that he's gonna change his plans, and he's actually gonna capture the bridge of Wrightsville, try to march his way into Lancaster County, mount his men on horses, and then attack Harrisburg from the East Shore. Um, but, so you have an account both from Baldy Smith and a corroborating Confederate account that these guys are worthless or utterly inefficient, and there are plenty of other descriptions with other colorful language as well. So Couch ordered the, the building of some forts on, on the bluff overlooking the Susquehanna on the opposite side of the river from Harrisburg. And for viewers who may not be familiar with it, our studio is in Camp Hill, and the adjacent community is Lemoyne, which at that time was called Bridgeport. Bridgeport. And that's mm-hmm. where those forts were. If you go up on top of the hill today, uh, some of the earthworks are still, are yeah, still there. Correct. You can Fort go take Washington a look at those. and Fort Couch, yep. Well, sir, there's some fighting that took place just a couple of blocks from where we're sitting. Mm-hmm. And uh, you do mention, you tell uh, a story of one of the soldiers or one of the workers who was working on those forts, how he, the, the bank was so steep that he fell off and broke his oh, back along the railroad back bed. along the railroad bed, yeah. Yep. Yeah, there weren't a lot of civilian casualties in Pennsylvania uh, during the Gettysburg Campaign. There were a few. Uh, Albert Gallatin Jenkins, when his Confederate cavalry is invading Franklin County, uh, some of his less industrious or uh, soldiers perhaps some shirkers uh, are off at a farm and they murder a Pennsylvanian by the name of Isaac Streit uh, right in front of his family and dump his body upside down in a manure pile where his daughter finds him. Uh, but by and large, Pennsylvania civilians, you know, are going to escape health-wise uh, with very few casualties as a result of this. Property-wise, already uh, by June you know, 16th, 17th, and 18th, when the Confederate cavalry starts coming into this region in earnest, they're already taking horses and mules and supplies and hauling them back to the Army of Northern Virginia. In fact, they're going to eventually take, I believe, the number of 70,000 cattle uh, out of Pennsylvania, and there will be cattle from York County, at least I know, uh, still in the Confederate commissary in 1864, still alive, uh, being used to feed the Army as the war progresses. How did African Americans in some of the, the southern counties in, in South Central Pennsylvania react to the prospect of Confederate troops coming north? With sheer unadulterated terror. Yep. Some of them were actually, even though they were free, not necessarily escaped slaves, but uh, free blacks, were seized by Jenkins' command and sent south and forced into slavery again, even though they were not slaves to begin with. Uh, it was it was a bad situation, and it certainly was a thing that was used to stir up local uh, intense feelings against the invading Confederates. Yeah, in fact, uh, one of the last known African Americans to be captured by the Confederate Army happened in York uh, on June 28th through June 30th during the occupation of York when a uh, 10-year-old boy uh, who for some reason is still out on the streets of York, a black boy, uh, is captured, taken to Castle Thunder in Richmond, is never heard from again, presumably sold off into slavery. 
Uh, now, one of the figures you mentioned uh, in the book was Gideon Wells. He was the Secretary of the Navy at the time, and he had some pretty interesting comments about the Army leadership. Uh, what, what did you find in reading his diaries? So Wells, Wells was a guy who was not afraid to write his opinions down in his diary, and some of them are very strong, uh, and some of the, his descriptions are quite colorful. Uh, Wells is a, is, is a great source to provide us with insight into the political side of all of this because he recorded almost everything. And um, his diary is an entertaining read. It's a published book, if you, and, and if you want to read it, folks can track it down and read it. Uh, lots of interesting insights. Mm. Yeah, one of the things is he's certainly no fan of Joseph Hooker. No, not by at any, all. By any stretch of the imagination. He's one of the cabinet members that would just as soon see Hooker uh, you know, uh, find some other means of employment besides military career. Now, one of the figures uh, that, that plays a role in this campaign was uh, Major John Mosby. And he's very famous for his kind of guerrilla bands. Uh, but it was, it was a cavalry unit. And how was how his unit used as part of this campaign? Well, you're going to see a lot more of it in volume two. Mm -hmm. um, Mosby was really, more than anything else, Jeb Stewart's favorite scout. Mm -hmm. And it's Mosby is the one who is going to report to Stewart that he can make a ride around the Army of the Potomac uh, and pass through the Bull Run Mountains, uh, the Catoctins north of the, the, uh, the, Mar the uh, Potomac River, same mountain chain, and will play a critical role in what becomes known derisively as Stewart's ride during the Gettysburg campaign. Uh, but Mosby ends up getting cut off by the Army of the Potomac and is unable to report back to Stuart to provide him with accurate intelligence, and the rest of that gets documented in, in Volume 2. Mosby himself and his, his rangers will end up in south-central Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. uh, they actually capture a large flock of sheep and, and cattle near Mercersburg, which they then rustle and, and head back down mm -hmm. uh, into Virginia for use by the Army of Northern Virginia. Uh, now, one of the interesting features that you guys mentioned in, in the book was that at one point, as many people were volunteering in Pennsylvania to serve, there was a group of people who you say, uh, 16 men, the youngest being 68 years mm -hmm. old and the oldest 76. Who were these men? Yeah, it was uh, Captain Charles Carson and a group of volunteers showed up in Harrisburg, presented themselves to the governor, uh, Andrew Curtin, and said, here we are. Uh, they came down Walnut Street here in Harrisburg, uh, dressed in unusual clothing, they were uh, had a martial beat that wasn't quite what people were used to from all the troops that had been parading through Harrisburg throughout the war. Uh, and there were old men, uh, to use terminology of the day. Uh, many of them were War of 1812 veterans uh, that had decided they wanted to serve again. They actually carried a flag from the American Revolution. Uh, and so these guys ended up uh, working without pay, they ended up in the trenches at uh, uh, Fort Washington, Fort Couch, helping to defend Harrisburg. Uh, and they're one of the very few military units that was extant during the War of 1812 and the American Civil War. So I want to shift focus uh, maybe to Washington and some, some of the senior commanders sure. and, and the intelligence that, that they had about all these movements. Uh, you had mentioned before how important cavalry was to seeking it out. Was Pleasanton's cavalry doing the job that it needed to do to, to find Lee's troops? Yes and no. Um, Stuart 
did a superb job of keeping the Union cavalry away from Lee's army, which is why you have three significant cavalry battles in the Loudoun Valley of Virginia at Aldi, Middleburg, and Upperville on June uh, 17, 19, and 21. And the June 21 battle is really significant for <clears throat> one thing, which is it's the first time that the Union cavalry outright defeated the Stuart and his cavalry on the field of battle and sent it flying. But that said, by keeping that, that cavalry occupied, uh, it kept them from finding the precise location and disposition of Lee's army, although Pleasanton, who was not known for being truthful, uh, will, will make some very exaggerated claims that, that proved not to be true. Luckily for the Army of the Potomac, it had something called the, the Bureau of Military Information, which is sort of a inconsequential-sounding name for what turned out to be a, a network of extremely effective and accurate spies uh, who were gathering information by operating behind enemy lines and then reporting this information back up to the commander of the BMI as a fellow, a lawyer from New York named George Sharp. And uh, Colonel Sharp would in turn provide intelligence reports to the Army Command that were extraordinarily accurate and extremely useful. The Confederates, by contrast, didn't have anything quite like that. So uh, the information that's being provided by the BMI and to some extent by Pleasanton's cavalry gave the Army of the Potomac a leg up. Yeah, one of the things that was also happening at the same time, here in Pennsylvania, there were, to use Eric's word, spies that were not affiliated with the BMI that were sent out by the governor and by the general couch here in Harrisburg. Uh, these were largely civilians. Uh, they were unpaid volunteers. Uh, in Gettysburg, some of them reported to David McConaughey, one of the attorneys in that area. Uh, there were a number of scouts throughout Adams, York, and Franklin County in particular would ride down into Maryland. And as the Confederate troops were starting their approach towards Pennsylvania, would have a relay system of riding back to the telegraph stations along the railways here in Pennsylvania and sending word back to Harrisburg. In fact, many of the transcripts of that still exist here in Harrisburg at the State Archives uh, in the uh, governor's telegraphic files. A talk about the communication network that was being established informally, then later a little more formally, but certainly without the auspices of formal military training or education. These are just guys, farmers, uh, mechanics, you know, people who could ride horses and ride them well uh, that volunteered to go out and try to find the Confederates. Now, one of the things you write about in the book is how, as, as Union troops were moving up from the Fredericksburg area, they were starting to camp in Manassas on the, what had been the battlefields of the first and second Bull Run. How much evidence of those battles was around when they, when they were there? Plenty. Uh, also, the Confederates marched right through the Chancellorsville battlefield sure. on their way out of Fredericksburg, and lots of accounts of them uh, finding partially uncovered combat casualties that, you know, wild animals have dug up in order to uh, uh, indulge in food. So you, you find lots of, of accounts of seeing these ghastly sights as they're marching, uh, going from place to place of uh, partially uh, disinterred bodies that have been uh, feasted upon by animals, and it's, it's a pretty gruesome sight. Yeah. And there's lots of accounts of it. Oh, yeah. So as the 
the Confederate troops were moving up the Shenandoah Valley. Uh, the Union troops were, as you mentioned earlier, positioning themselves to defend Washington and Baltimore from any possible moves there. Yeah, they, they sit for a fair amount of time in the Centerville, Manassas area because, again, they're still, nobody's still sure what Lee's doing. That's one of the reasons why Lincoln had called for uh, troops in Ohio and West Virginia because, you know, as late as June 15th, 16th after the Battle of Winchester, nobody, other than maybe the governor of Pennsylvania, are convinced they're really coming to the Commonwealth. Uh, so there's certainly a very strong school of thought that they are going to turn and go towards Washington or Baltimore. So the Union Army has to stay somewhat stationary uh, to protect those roads while there's still, you know, these militia troops being raised in Ohio, West Virginia, and Pennsylvania, just in the case if Lee turns and happens to go in any of those directions. One of the orders that I think Reynolds was looking to escape from had he been given command of the Army was this order that the Army of the Potomac at all times has to be maintain a position interposed between Lee and Washington right. and Baltimore. And Reynolds, I think, wanted to have the freedom to operate and not be bound by that. <coughs> and uh, the Lincoln administration would, would not bend its rule to allow that sort of freedom. And it's not until Grant is brought east in 64 and given command of the Army that they sort of back off of that. Mm -hmm. Uh, even when George Meade is ordered to take command of the army on June 28th, the first order that he's given is you keep your army between Lee and Washington and Baltimore right. at all times. No exceptions, period. Yeah. It's the basic reason why the Confederates are here in Pennsylvania for two weeks before the Army of uh, Potomac ever arrive. And, of course, we all know that ends in the Battle of Gettysburg on July 1st to the 3rd. But from June 15th, you know, through, uh, through the Battle of Gettysburg, almost every single day there are Confederate troops either in Pennsylvania or leaving Pennsylvania and then coming, turning around and coming back in Albert Jenkins' case. Uh, and so the Confederates are, to use one phrase, running amok. Uh, and the Army of uh, Potomac is still sitting there protecting Washington. It's one of the many reasons why Lincoln's election, in South, at least in 1864 in South Central Pennsylvania, he will lose by a much greater margin than he did in 1860 uh, because the residents of those counties are fed up with the fact that Washington protected Washington and in their minds did not do anything uh, aggressively to protect Pennsylvania. And I might add, it's the same reason why after the Battle of Gettysburg, Lee is, while Lee is, is making his movement toward the Potomac River, the Army of the Potomac is, is locked in at Gettysburg. It can't leave until they know what Lee's intentions are. So you get a lot of criticism of Meade for not pursuing Lee's army after Gettysburg. It's because his orders were stay between Lee and Washington and Baltimore at all times. And until they knew what Lee's intentions were, they had to stay where they were. Mm -hmm. Was there an effort, as Lee's army moved north, uh, was there any effort on the Union side to uh, have troops attack Richmond? Uh, at one point you mentioned that Hooker wrote a letter to General Dix on the peninsula. Did that amount to anything? Go ahead. Go ahead. The answer is there was indeed... Uh, an, an aborted campaign mm -hmm. by Union troops on the peninsula. And when I say the peninsula, I'm referring to the area from Williamsburg down to the, the Chesapeake Bay. Uh, to move on Richmond from the east, uh, the, the troops there were commanded by Major General John Dix. Uh, and they did receive orders to move, and they did make some movement, but it ended up being aborted and ended up not doing much of anything. But it did keep some Confederate troops tied up. Sure. 
it was an opportunity and had somebody a little more with a little more vim and vigor and a little more aggressiveness than the elderly John Dix been in command of it, they may very well have captured Richmond. Mm -hmm. Indeed. There were, there, there were some uh, foreign officers in the Union Army at that time. One was uh, Colonel Duffy, who commanded the... Duffier. Duffier, who commanded the, uh, one of the cavalry divisions. Who was he? So Duffier was a Frenchman. He had enlisted in the French Army. Uh, he made it up to sergeant. He was decorated for valor uh, as a cavalryman during the, uh, the Crimean War, was promoted to lieutenant, and met an American woman and deserted to come back to the United States with this woman, Marianne Pelton. And uh, his real name was Alexander Napoleon Duffier. He was known as Natty to his friends. Uh, when he came to the United States, they created this new persona, Alfred Napoleon Duffier, supposedly a graduate of the French Military Academy, which he never did. And they created this completely new persona for the, for the guy who was really a fraud, mm -hmm. but he was having been a sergeant of cavalry in, in the Napoleon III's army and having served pretty well, he was a good trainer, a good organizer of men, but he was living, breathing proof of the Peter Principle in that he was advanced well beyond his level of competence and remained there for longer than he should have. Now you mentioned in the book that uh, Alfred Pleasanton, he was uh, known for being a, a, rab a rabid xenophobe, uh, and he said, I have no faith in foreigners saving our government. I conscientiously believe that Americans only should rule in this matter and settle this rebellion. Was he thinking about him when he was thinking about this? Actually, primarily, that was directed more at a man named Julius Stahl, mm -hmm. who was a major general of cavalry who outranked Pleasanton, who commanded the cavalry assigned to the defenses of Washington, who was a Hungarian who had come to the United States after the failed uh, revolutions in Europe of 1848, and uh, actually, it had, had he, his division been assigned to the Army of the Potomac because he outranked Pleasanton, he would have subsumed Pleasanton as commander of the Cavalry Corps. So Pleasanton was bound and determined to remove his rival so that he could maintain permanent command of the Corps. And through some maneuvering and uh, untruths and everything that go along with it, he managed to get Stahl relieved of command. Yeah, and that wasn't atypical of what was going on in the Army. If we go back to Milroy, for example, we're talking about Winchester. Uh, when Milroy had first taken command of Winchester back in the December 31st, January 1st area, uh, he, did not, he also did not trust foreign officers, absolutely hated them. And he had a French officer commanding his second uh, brigade by the name of Clouseret. Uh, that he fires uh, for the same reason. He just doesn't, doesn't trust foreign officers. So that feeling seemed to be, if not widespread, at least more than, more than just in the case of Pleasanton. There were a number of officers that simply did not trust the foreign-born officers. And some of that may have been an outgrowth of the pre-war um, know-nothing party feeling where a, a number of Americans just didn't trust immigrants anymore with the American political party that, you know, in the early 1850s was fairly successful. But this whole feeling of, uh, you know, if you weren't native-born, uh, you were inferior, that tended to, to still be there. And there were, there were a fair number of foreign officers in the Army of the Potomac Cavalry Corps. There was a, a, an Italian by the name of Luigi Palma di Sassnola, who was an Italian count from an ancient ennobled family. There was Sir Percy Wyndham, who was a British soldier of fortune. 
There was Duffier, there was Julius Stahl, not technically a part of the Army of the Potomac, but you have these foreign officers, and uh, they were just determined uh, at the top level, at Pleasanton's level, to purge them and to, to not have to deal with them. So we just have a couple of minutes left, and sure. before we wrap up, I want to uh, just ask you about uh, Southern sympathizers in Southern Pennsylvania. Ooh. At one point you say tensions, particularly between federal authorities and militant anti-war Southern sympathizers, remain high in some of PA's border counties. Yeah, there was, uh, Southern Pennsylvania certainly was not strongly pro-Lincoln. In fact, I live in York County, uh, one of the townships there, Mannheim Township, voted 174 votes for John C. Breckinridge, the Vice President of the United States, and only two votes for Abraham Lincoln. So this anti-Lincoln feeling was pervasive in parts of the area. Uh, there were folks who certainly welcomed the Confederates uh, as they came into Pennsylvania. There were folks who were actively involved in spying for the Confederate Army. Um, in fact, uh, John Gordon later will write in, as we talk about in volume two, uh, a bouquet of red roses is given to him by a Pennsylvania civilian, a little girl, uh, written in her woman's flowery handwriting with the complete plans of the defenses of the Susquehanna River at Wrightsville. So they are certainly support uh, in areas of Pennsylvania uh, in this region for the Confederates as they come into this area. And in fact, there are two York County citizens that will actually guide uh, Joe Borley's division into York County as they come there. Well, we've been speaking with Scott Mingus and Eric Wittenberg. They are the authors of If We Are Striking for Pennsylvania, The Army of Northern Virginia and the Army of the Potomac, March to Gettysburg, Volume 1, June 3 to 21, 1863. Gentlemen, thank you both. Thank you, Phil. Thanks, Phil. Enjoying this podcast? Visit PCNTV.com to find out how to support our mission. PCN is a 501c3 nonprofit television network. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.